wow you all, the article that we are going to discuss today is one of the most helpful research articles that I have reviewed thus far on the podcast. In this systematic review, we're going to look at the authors take 52 pediatric OT interventions for children with disabilities and rate the evidence behind them. They then organize the interventions into a traffic light infographic, where green means the evidence supports this intervention. Now, this alone makes the evidence rating super easy to scan through and more accessible for therapists and families and policymakers. But then in the article, they even go so far as to draw out common principles between the green light interventions. So today on the podcast, we are going to be breaking down this article and then to discuss how this research applies to your occupational therapy practice. We are so excited to welcome to the podcast, Michelle De Jesus, MSOTRL. Michelle is a pediatric occupational therapist working specifically in pediatric outpatient rehabilitation and early intervention. Her and I will walk through what it looks like for busy therapists on the ground to leverage this evidence to improve their care. So let's dive in. Welcome to the OT Potential Podcast, where we review new and influential OT journal articles, then invite an expert guest on to help us pull out actionable takeaways that you can implement in your practice starting today. Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Lyon, OTRL. And before we dive into our pediatric evidence review, I wanted to let you know that this podcast may qualify as continuing education for you. To gain CEU credit, you will need to be a member of the OT Potential Club, our OT evidence-based practice platform. It is just $79 to join us in the club, and if you're not yet a member, I just highly encourage you to join us in there. So bearing in mind that this could count as a continuing education course, I wanted to state our two learning objectives so you can be thinking about them throughout the podcast today. Our first learning objective is that you will be able to describe two trends among interventions with a strong evidence base. And our second objective is that you will be able to identify the four common components of activity-based green light interventions. So let's begin by looking at our journal article, and then we will bring on Michelle to discuss how this research can play out in your practice. So the authors begin with a quick intro into pediatric OT trends. They tell us that pediatric OT has been evolving in line with new research and theory. And notable shifts in our profession include a growing focus on family-centered care and in alignment with the World Health Organization's International Classification of Functioning Disability and Health, or the ICF framework. And as part of this evolution in our practice, occupational therapists are just increasingly moving away from impairment-based interventions to focus more heavily on activity and participation. And you'll see as we dive into the evidence how the research is backing this up. But in the intro, they also lay out this just big picture problem with OT research as it stands. So even though pediatric OT has certainly changed over the past decades and years, the problem of research lag remains. In fact, the translation of new evidence into practice can take 10 to 20 years. This is a seriously, seriously long delay that hinders occupational therapists in their critical role of partnering with families to choose interventions and tailoring treatments in a way that aligns with the family's goals, values, and potential. So what was the aim and purpose of this research study? There were three main things that the authors were seeking to accomplish with this paper. 
First, they wanted to systematically describe current pediatric OT intervention options for different diagnoses. Second, they wanted to rate the quality of and recommendations for these interventions. And three, they wanted to organize the ratings using the evidence alert traffic light system. And their ultimate purpose here was to create a one-stop guide for clinicians and policymakers who are working to achieve better outcomes for children. So what were the author's methods to accomplish this? This study was a systematic review presenting an analysis of other systematic reviews as well as randomized control trials. The authors included studies involving the provision of any type of OT to children with disabilities. To analyze the research quality, the authors used the GRADE system. And GRADE is short for the Grading of Recommendations, Assessment, Development, and Evaluations. And I am just going to refer you to the article to see the full details on how they applied this GRADE system and the Evidence Alert Traffic Light system. So what were the results of this systematic review? The authors found 129 articles that met the inclusion criteria. 75 systematic reviews, and 54 randomized controlled trials. The studies involved 22 diagnoses. And I'm going to just take the time to read through these 22 diagnoses just so you can hear whether there is research in the study that would apply to kids on your caseload. So these 22 diagnoses were arthrogryposis, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, autism spectrum disorder, behavior disorders, brachial plexus injury, brain injury, burns, cerebral palsy, cancer, chronic pain, developmental coordination disorder, developmental disability, Down syndrome, fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, learning disability, mental health, intellectual disability, obesity, preterm infants, physical disability, rheumatoid arthritis, and spina bifida. So those are the diagnoses, which leads us to what interventions did they find and how did they rate them? The authors identified 52 occupational therapy interventions across these 22 diagnoses, and they found 135 different intervention indications. 40 of these were graded as green light, or what they simply called the do-it category. And what they basically did was they created this bubble chart where all the interventions were given that green light, yellow light, or red light status. So they grouped them in that way, and then they also grouped them based on the main outcomes that the research had studied. And these outcomes were broadly broken down into motor outcomes, behavioral outcomes, function-based outcomes, cognition, and parent. So basically what you're going to see when you look at this article is this awesome bubble chart graph with these 135 different bubbles that represent different interventions for different populations, all graded on this green, yellow, red. So you'll really have to spend time with this chart in the original article and in our outline in the club to really take it all in. For our purposes on the podcast, I am just going to read through the interventions that are in the motor outcomes category just to give you a sense of what this chart contains. So in the green light or the do it category are the interventions CIMT, handwriting task practice, EI developmental approach, bimanual training, OT plus botulinum toxin, goal-directed training, home program, the co-op approach, and treadmill training. For motor outcomes, it breaks the yellow light into two categories, probably do it and probably don't do it. I'm going to read the probably do it for us. And that list includes positioning, orthotics, visual motor interventions, casting, the EI game, the co-op approach, assistive technology, virtual reality, 
hippotherapy, skills training, and mental rehearsal, treadmill training, yoga, biofeedback, body vibration, and school therapy. And down in the red light, it had NDT for cerebral palsy and handwriting sensory approach for developmental coordination disorder. And for all those interventions that I mentioned, it also lists a specific population that was studied. So again, I just highly encourage you to go check out this chart. It is awesome. But for our purposes here, we are going to stay pretty high level and we're going to head straight into their discussion. And look at what the author said were the clinical implications of this research. The author stated that pediatric occupational therapists have multiple evidence-based interventions to choose from when working with children, including the 40 that received a strong recommendation based on the evidence and thus their green light. The authors also highlighted two important learnings related to clinical implications. Their first was that parent partnership is effective and worthwhile. For the diagnoses studied, it was clear that parents respond well to education and training. Therefore, home programs and self-management training are effective ways to increase the intensity of treatment. Their second, just big picture takeaway was that activity-based or top-down interventions led to better gains. There is this great chart in the article that groups the interventions according to the ICF levels of function, which, as many of us know, are body structures, activities, participation, environment, and personal factors. And the body structure level had the highest number of interventions. These are our bottom-up interventions. They're really focused on impairments, and that's where the most research had been done historically. But interestingly, the interventions that focused on the activity level had the highest percentage of green light interventions, which is what led them to say that when we focus at that activity level, these interventions tend to lead to better gains, which I would say is good news for OTs because many of us try to stay focused at that activity level in our interventions. And according to the author, these activity level interventions had four key ingredients in common. First, they begin with the child's goal. Second, they involve practicing real-life activities in natural environments. Three, they use intense repetition to activate brain plasticity. And fourth, they use scaffolding to find the just right challenge. So what were their conclusions and their ideas for future research? The authors conclude that this paper provided a high-level summary of effective pediatric treatment options. Therapists interested in learning more about each intervention and the administration or training are encouraged to dive into the related research cited in the article and to explore new research that has come out since the article's publication. And one future research implication that stood out to me was the need for more evidence at the participation level. Clinical trials to date have shown that effective interventions like CMT do show success at improving activities but that these gains don't necessarily translate to broader participation gains, which of course is one of our goals as OTs, and there's just a lot more research to be done in this area. So that is our overview of the article. There is a lot to chew on in there, a lot to process, which is why I'm so thankful to be welcoming Michelle to the podcast. As I mentioned, Michelle is a pediatric occupational therapist. She is based out of Miami, Florida. Her experience spans across various pediatric settings, including a hospital-based pediatric rehabilitation center, prescribed pediatric extended care centers, or PPECs, private practice, and home health. 
She most recently launched her own home-based private practice called New Play Therapy, where she is able to serve children in their natural environment or via telemedicine, with an emphasis on providing family-centered care that is rooted in evidence and brain-based approaches. In addition to her clinical role, Michelle is passionate about promoting justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion, and has served as a national board member for the Coalition of Occupational Therapy Advocates for Diversity, or COTAD. As a Latina OT, Michelle strongly believes in the power of mentorship, representation, and entrepreneurship to pave paths for emerging leaders of diverse backgrounds. And she utilizes her website, Michelle DOT, to mentor underrepresented students and promote action towards a more equitable and inclusive profession and practice. So without further ado, it is my pleasure to welcome Michelle onto this podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Michelle. It's great to have you. Thank you so much, Sarah. I'm so honored to be on here. I just feel honored to be talking about this topic and this paper. For me, seeing this evidence traffic light really like painted this vision of how we might see evidence displayed in the future. And I feel so excited about the possibilities of our evidence being more accessible and thinking how it could help us partner with parents better and just communicate our value. Yeah, this really felt like a vision casting article for me. But at the same time, I'm so happy to be talking about it with you because you are in the trenches, you're working. There's so many barriers to taking something so dense and implementing in our practices. Uh, so I'm really thankful that you're taking the time to talk to us today. I'm really excited to, to be able to share my perspective. So again, thank you so much for the opportunity. Before we get to the article, I really wanted to just learn a little bit more about you and to start with how you found occupational therapy. So my story, I'm starting to discover that it's not as uncommon as I thought it was. So Hmm. I didn't really even know what occupational therapy was until my junior year of undergrad. I really thought I was going to be a PA. I had my, Hmm. you know, eyes set on that goal until... Well, I guess it really wasn't until I joined Best Buddies International, an organization that the university I was in, actually, I believe they're the founders of that organization, but I joined that organization and then I just was able to understand a little bit more about the lived experience of students and young adults with disabilities. And that was something that really opened my eyes to new professions because a lot of the common themes that a lot of the members of that group had was that they received some sorts of therapies and occupational therapy was mentioned. And I didn't know about it, but my buddy Mm -hmm. really educated me on that and introduced me to the profession. And after I found out about it, I learned more. I really just was in love with the whole concept of it. And then I shadowed an OT. I fell in love with pediatrics in particular. And it was history from there. I, I really changed my major. Thankfully, a lot of the prerequisites I had already met So that's how I kind of fell into OT. It really wasn't something until really junior year of college, (laughs) I knew. Yeah, it's so amazing to me to hear these stories where people don't grow up wanting to be an OT. They like Mm -hmm. find it and fall in love, which I think Mm -hmm. speaks so highly of our profession that someone can fall in love so quickly and then Mm -hmm. reorient their career. I agree that your story is really common where people find it later in life and then they just Mm -hmm. dive all in. So that's how you found OT. And then can you tell us about the work that you're doing now? Okay. So currently 
I always joke that I have too many jobs, but <laughs> I always talk about too many jobs. But I work part time for a children's hospital in South Florida in their outpatient rehabilitation center. We work with kids of all ages, a variety of diagnoses. It's really medical model ish in that sense because we really implement a lot of these highly structured interventions. We see kids of various abilities. We I can go on and on and on, but but I think you get the gist of it, kids of all ages. And then my other work, I do contract work and I see private clients through my practice, New Play Therapy. That's what I do, you know, part-time and through being able to work in these various settings. So very vastly different settings, you know, where I'm working in the natural environment through my own practice and through contract work, I'm working in daycares, preschools, in the child's home, as well as prescribed pediatric extended care centers. I'm able to see the differences in those environments versus in a clinic and highly structured environment. And that's kind of some of the work that I do. And I like to say that one of my fun facts is that I speak Spanish with probably 80% or more of my caseload, Mm. everything from education to the parents to working with the child one-on-one assessments, interventions, all of that 80% of the time I would say is predominantly in Spanish. Hmm. And did you know when you left OT school that you wanted to be a pediatric OT? Has that been your focus? I always loved it. I didn't know for sure, though. I didn't know for sure until field work, I would say, where I really noticed a difference when I was in my pediatric rotation versus adults, because I just felt super excited to Mm. go (laughs) to field work and to like really work with these kids. Like I just felt this energy where actually I had this misconception that I thought that I didn't have enough energy to work in pediatrics because I am like a bubbly person at times, but I also can get really exhausted from being, you know, high energy mm-hmm. all the time. But I really felt like at the end of my day or throughout the day, I felt little bursts of energy depending on the kids that I was working with. And it really was rewarding, more rewarding to me than the other settings I was able to explore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We talk about that in the podcast is that feeling when we know we're providing meaningful therapy where it gives us like a lot of energy as therapists Mm -hmm. and you can just that's like an easy way to check yourself to be like how valuable is the therapy that I'm delivering if it's draining you and you're not engaged is probably not the best (laughs) you may not be delivering the best (laughs) therapy so I want to get right to this article because it's so big it's so dense I wanted to start with your initial impressions of it. For me, as someone who doesn't work in pediatrics, first of all, I loved it because it was so easily laid out. It was easy to like scan and see the different interventions, but there were also a ton of interventions that I personally wasn't even familiar with. How did the article hit you? Yeah, what were your feelings as you were reading it? I have so many thoughts on this article, but <laughs> I'll take it from the top. <laughs> I mean, it's it, like you said, it's really dense. It's a really dense article. There's a lot of information. But what I really appreciated about it was that it simplified such a difficult concept, right? Because we have so many interventions that are constantly coming out. It's hard for us as therapists who, one, have the time to be able to look up every single intervention mm-hmm. and understand which one has the highest level of evidence. So this article being a systematic review, we know this is the highest level of evidence that there is. It's level one. And we're able to understand that there's a lot of support for implementing these interventions. And the way that they 
categorize it, red, yellow, and green light interventions, I think it's pretty genius because I think it's something really simple to just be able to break down all of the information that was provided. And I'm such a visual person. So that Mm -hmm. really helps me just kind of categorize things in my brain and, and really think about like, Oh yeah, I remember this intervention being, you know, super highly evidence-based, or I remember this intervention being a little controversial with what the evidence supports. So that's something that really helps busy therapists like myself to be able to know at least a guideline of what our practice should be looking like, what we should be trying to incorporate more. It's almost like a, I don't want to say a framework, but it really like a guideline that can help us be able to strengthen the quality of our interventions by giving us this list of things that we should be looking at and turning our attention towards. Mm -hmm. But on the other side of that coin, it doesn't, you know, because it's so broad and dense, it doesn't break down the evidence in a way that can give us more meaningful takeaways from it. Like, yes, we know that COGFON or co-op or CIMT are highly effective, but that's all we know. We don't know how to do it. We don't know the certification process. We don't know if that's feasible for the settings that we work in. It doesn't go into the barriers. It doesn't go into like, who are the participants of the study? doesn't go into like anything that might be biased about the study, who funded the study. There's a lot of things that we need to start thinking about in terms of research that we can get if we go by each article one by one. But in this kind of thing, we don't really know. For all we know that all the evidence that was used to support this particular intervention excluded people, which historically we know that many, you know, marginalized communities have not been included in in research studies and, or some studies don't even screen for that. They don't even include racial, ethnic, demographic data in their studies. So we're not Mm -hmm. necessarily able to generalize all of these outcomes to every single person that we come across. So we don't get that information. So it, it is like a starting point for us. I think it's something that, okay, we know that this is effective in certain populations. We know that this is something that the evidence that does exist supports, but it's just one data point. It shouldn't be Mm -hmm. the end-all, be-all. Yeah, and that's definitely how I read every research article. I'm like, this is helpful information. We can gather nuggets from it, but no single article is the end-all, be-all, like you said. Mm -hmm. And I love the reasons that you mentioned that we shouldn't look at this as like the definitive guide for our practice. And me, as someone who doesn't practice pediatric OT, I could never read this and be like, oh, now I'm skilled in these green light interventions, <laughs> you know, like right. there's still a lot of work. I was curious as you were reading it, were there interventions that were unfamiliar to you or did you scan through it and feel like you knew most of them? Well, I think the ones that were relevant to the settings that I have experience in, I, I knew a lot of them, like the kinesiotaping, yeah. CIMT, manual intensive training. A lot of those I was really familiar with and have been doing. Some of them that I don't necessarily see in my practice, like burn, chronic pain, cog fun. There's some that I hadn't hadn't seen before and I had to really look into them and see, oh, is this something that's easily implemented? Is this something that I need to get specific training for? I really had to dive a little bit deeper outside of this article to be able to understand what they really were and if it would be something that I could essentially implement in my practice now. Yeah, it was interesting to have like the NICU interventions bundled in there. In some ways, it's helpful to have everything in one place, but you could also see how how it'd be helpful Mm -hmm. to have it like broken down by age groups Mm -hmm. or something like that. Yeah, I would love to see that for future 
iterations of mm. this evidence traffic light. So thinking really high level, I love their really high level takeaways from all of this research. And I want to start with the first one. One was that they found that parent partnerships are effective and worthwhile. I was wondering how that hit you. Is that what you're seeing in your clinic? After reading that section, is there anything that you'll do differently thinking about partnering with parents? Mm-hmm. So I have a story for this question. <laughs> so just to give background, because the way that I currently partner with families took a while to develop because initially when I first graduated and I started in pediatrics, I really was intimidated having parents be present all the time. You know, I kind of had adopted that culture of, you know, bringing the child in and then talking to them at the end of the session for a couple minutes, how it went, what we're working on, things like that, but not really a hundred percent present and comfortable bringing them back, having them jump in and teaching them things and coaching. That was a skill I had to learn over time. And the more that I developed that skill, the better I would see the kids would do. And I I wanted to really think about why that was, but also it led me down this rabbit hole of wanting to understand how kids learn. So I really took that initiative to learn about pediatric brain development and neuroplasticity and all of these principles that a lot of these interventions are based on. But it took me down that rabbit hole because I, I felt like I wanted to connect the dots. I felt like I knew, oh, this intervention for this, this intervention for that, but I didn't understand the conceptual basis of the foundation of why. And once I started to dive into that, I started realizing, oh my gosh, I am doing this like in a way that is going against the grain. Like you could be doing everything right in your session, but if that intensity and that repetition is not there and the family is not understanding why, uh, you could be the best therapist in the world, but it's going to be very hard to make gains with just one or two sessions a week, 30 minute sessions, whatever it is that you're allotted in your setting. But it really changed the way that I practice. And now the way that I partner with families is different because I really think about the most important time is when they're present and when they're actively participating in the session, not so much of what I'm doing, but what I'm teaching the parent and what they are able to do with their child. So now they come back. I have families. I really love video. That's my preferred way of um, carrying over a lot of the things. So I'll have the parent video what I'm doing. And then after they're done videoing, they do it and practice it and that kind of thing. And and that really helps with carryover. And it's easy. It's time effective. It doesn't really take much time outside of the sessions. It's, you know, while we're there, here's what we're going to do. How does it feel for you? Get a lot of feedback, right? You know, in real time. So that is something that I've developed over time. It's not always possible in some settings. Sometimes like it may be difficult, for example, like in the hospital-based setting right now because of COVID, if there's more kids coming in, we can't bring them all back. We're very strict with like who can come back. It's one caregiver at a time. Things like that can be a barrier to having the parent present in the session. But overall, I do see that partnering with parents is just, it's critical for everything that you're doing, especially with OT, which is something that's not always easily understood. And the value Mm -hmm. may not always be easily interpreted by parents. It's just essential. And, you know, in the beginning was very hard for me (laughs) and I had to develop it over, you know, the the couple of years. I so admire your story and how you were such a scientist and like figuring out what worked better. And I think of myself, Michelle, and I I was working with adults and I 
was like you at the beginning, not good at incorporating the family. And I honestly didn't improve in that like I would have liked to. Now that I see this research, I'm like, wow, what missed opportunities I had. What do you think was in you that made you make that change? Were you seeing other people incorporating families better? Or are you just like an awesome learner and self-studier? <laughs> like, how I, come I, you were able to do that and I wasn't? <laughs> oh, stop, Sarah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think I'm just, I'm one of those people that really is critical. I'm very critical of myself. And that's something that mm. I, I work on a lot. And one of the things that really was hard on me was seeing these kids for a year and not seeing the progress that I wanted to see. And I really took that personally because, you know, I was seeing these kids and sometimes it was solely me as a therapist. So I can't, you know, essentially think it was someone else. It was mm -hmm. just me seeing this child and working with this family. And I'm not seeing the outcomes that I wanted to see that I know that the potential was there. Like I, I felt that that potential was there. And it really made me feel bad. And I wanted to look into why that was like, what is going on here? You know, the child is coming to one, two times a week. It's not that they're not consistent with therapy. So what is the issue here? And I started to look into how exactly like how kids learn and all these principles. I'm like, wow, like maybe I am doing things right. As many therapists are, they mm -hmm. are reading the research, they are doing things, but unfortunately that practice isn't there. The repetition isn't there. It's not enough to get that child to the next level, to the next skill, to meet their goals. And that is something that really I internalized and I, I started looking more into and how I can change the way that I do things so that I'm able to see better outcomes. And whether that's changing the frequency, changing the duration of therapy, uh, establishing roles early on with parents has been really effective for me. Like if they know the first time that they walk into the eval, this is what this partnership is going to look like. What do you think about this? Is this something that's feasible for you? How can we make this work? How can we make this practice more frequent in their life without making it such a burden for you. And then just having that kind of conversation really has helped improve the outcomes that I'm seeing. And that's something that I'm constantly doing. I feel like I'm not at hundred percent yet. I'm always working towards, yeah. towards doing better and better, but that's just my personality, which is to me a pro and a con because it really <laughs> can be hard to always be so critical of what you're doing. But I've never taken it for granted that these parents are trusting me with their child. I mean, that's something to me that's like mind blowing. Like they're bringing their child to me or I'm coming to their house, like into their safe space. And I never take that lightly because I really want to be able to provide value no matter what I do. And if the value is not there, I'm always telling parents, like, if you're not seeing the progress, this is such a crucial moment for your child's life. Like we need to switch things up, even if it's another provider, if it's some another approach, if it's swimming classes or something, I'm always like advocating for them to be able to be very mindful and take control over the care of their child. If they're not seeing the outcomes they want, communicate that and we can change something. Yeah, I love how you were able to channel that energy of like wanting to see things be better. And really what you experience in the clinic is what we see playing out in the research. That's, I mm -hmm. love when things like that happen. Like what we see anecdotally is what the research is supporting mm -hmm. in this high level systematic review. They found the same thing that you found through just pushing yourself to be better. And that's incredible. And really kudos to you for kind of discovering that on your own. Yeah, I would have liked to have had some more like Michelle energy in some of the <laughs> sessions yeah, that I've given in the past. Yes. <laughs> Aww. Aww. It so, comes to being too hard on myself. <laughs> <laughs> oh. 
So the other big high-level takeaway that the authors highlighted, which I really loved, was they grouped the evidence by bottom-up interventions and then these top-down activity-level interventions. And they could see really clearly that the ones that had the most green light evidence were these top-down interventions that were really activity-based. And then they even went so far as to say the four main ingredients that they saw in these green light interventions. And the four main ingredients that they said, I said this earlier in the podcast, but I'm going to repeat them just to hear them again. They said that these green light interventions, they began with the child's goal. They involved practicing real-life activities in natural environments. They use intense repetitions to activate plasticity, and they use scaffolding to find the just right challenge. I was wondering, as you hear these four ingredients, did they all resonate with you? Was there something that stood out? Is that what you've found through just your own scientific approach (laughs) to your work? Yes. So not in the beginning, but now to where I'm at with the way that I provide therapy with my families, I definitely see that those principles are very highly consistent with neuroplasticity principles. And that is one of like my core concepts. And like one of the things that I live and breathe with therapy, along with family centered care, those two principles, I feel like are the ones that I merge together that I use all the time. And Klein and Jones are are two researchers and a lot of adult therapists are very familiar with their 10 principles of neuroplasticity, like use it or lose it, repetition matters, intensity matters. There's 10 of them, but those four that were mentioned in this article are very consistent with the ones that are mentioned in the 10 principles. We're taking things that are meaningful to the child, which is very highly motivating for them. So for something to be able to stick and for the child to reach like that state of flow and for them to be really engaged and for them to participate for longer periods of time, that motivation has to be high. So that's something that I see like is very consistent with that because they're really honoring the child's goals where sometimes that can be ignored, where if we use like a a really medical model approach or deficits model approach, it can be ignored. Like we think that it'll carry up into like activities and their daily life, but sometimes that's not always the case. So practicing those particular things that are meaningful can be a way to make those changes. And that's what we're seeing the research is supporting. Another thing they talk about is intensity. So that's something that I think about all the time, because I know that this is not enough. The time that I have one-on-one with the child is not enough. And I'm really sure to communicate that with the family so that they take that away. If they know off the bat that the therapy alone is like the opportunity for us to you know, kind of problem solve what's going on. I'm a resource to the family, but that they have to carry it over or we have to find a way for this to be natural for the child to carry it over in their daily life. And that's something that sets that expectation early on and can be able to be more easily conducted because intensive models of therapy are not all that common. And a lot of insurance companies don't always cover these intensive models that require that type of intense repetition like CIMT and habit training. So that's always something to think about. And it's always on the forefront of my mind. Like I always have to check these boxes. Like how can I make sure that the intensity is there? How can I make sure that the family and the child are motivated? How can I make sure that it's something that is challenging enough for the child? Is it too easy for them? It has to be like right at that just right challenge, which I think all OTs are really good at. I mean, I think that is bread and butter OT, knowing like where the the person is and kind of making it 
the perfect challenge because if it's too hard, then it just puts them off and it can be frustrating and we lose them. It's too easy. Then it's like, oh, well, like the motivation isn't always as high. So that's always a balance. So that's something that I think therapists in general are very good at doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't think about this before hearing you talk, but these two different high-level takeaways of family-centered care and then these four key ingredients. I don't see how you could do these four key ingredients without a parent partnership. And what I'm hearing from you is you're so good (laughs) at thinking about what's happening outside of your session, Mm -hmm. especially as new therapists, we're trained to be like, obviously focused on our session and what's the best we can do there. But you've made this shift of being really focused on how do I get this into the home, carry it over with the parents. Mm -hmm. That's where you get that high intensity. That's where you get the practice in natural environments. And you, lots of times you need the parents' input to like understand the child and their goals. Right. Yeah. So that's just incredible to hear. I wanted to ask, so for papers like this, research like this, that does such a good job of taking these pediatric interventions and putting them in traffic lights Do you think that evidence like this is widely shared among pediatric therapists, like on the teams that you're working on? And do you think it should be more widely shared? How can we do that? I think I'm thinking of there's definitely like some red light interventions that OTs are practicing and that's hard to see. Yeah. What do we need to do about sharing this information? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I also don't want to invalidate the bottom up interventions. I think that's that is something that I feel like I'm not the person to speak on like air sensory integration or NDT that were mentioned as red light interventions being not certified in these. But I also like to think that it's another skill set. So we can't take away the experience that these clinicians have had that have been practicing for years and years and years with this model and that even seeing positive outcomes. But I, I think that the research is one data point, right? Or maybe that there's a reason why it's not easily carried over, like those bottom-up interventions, like maybe they're effective in certain ways and it's just not showing in the research. I don't know. I can't really speak Mm -hmm. on that, but I do think that these guidelines are important because it really helps to give us something to look towards. Like where should we be directing our attention and energy towards what is something that, you know, we can use to support what we're doing and inform our practice. So not necessarily like evidence-based practice, but evidence-informed practice, because a lot of these interventions are not Mm -hmm. always necessarily feasible for therapists, you know, that work in different settings that don't make these things super easy to implement. There are a lot of barriers, which I know we're going to go into soon, but I think that for this to be more widely shared, We need to have opportunities to do that, whether that's through in-services, whether that's through journal clubs, whether that's through opportunities through our settings. And and I place a high value on education. I think it's important. And the article even states that there's such a lag with these interventions that this research is coming out. But ideally, if it's a new intervention that's highly evidence-based, it's not going to be widespread until 10 to 20 years later, which essentially is a whole kid's childhood you think about Mm -hmm. it. So that is something that I just kind of really reflected on after reading this article. And I'm just like, there has to be a a change. And this is not just OT specific. This is healthcare in general. There are many studies that state that like whatever is coming out now is not going to be implemented in practice for years and years and years later. I think 15 years was, was like an average, which is very sad. (laughs) It's very sad. Mm -hmm. And it's, 
it makes sense in some ways because there's so many barriers that exist with implementing research and the training required and, and things like that. But I will say, <laughs> I was happy to see that this was a free article. So it makes it more accessible for therapists. Anyone can look up this article, print it out, see it in its entirety. You don't have to have access to a database. That was very nice to see because a lot of journal articles like this are not always free and they're mm-hmm. not always easily accessible to therapists. So that's always something that I, I appreciate with equity in terms of you know, access to these kinds of resources. Yeah. Yeah. And in my ideal world, information like this is so accessible that even our parents can be looking at it. Like if we truly want to forge the kind of partnerships that we want Mm -hmm. to, I can just see the benefit of all parties looking at the same information that doesn't take away from our expertise. But yeah, ideally it's that accessible that all of us can be looking at it. I know when I go to my doctor's office, lots of times I'm looking up the recommendations that my doctor gives and it's a lot more accessible for like medications and stuff and it should be that accessible for OT interventions as well. You started to mention this and I loved how you talked about evidence-informed practice. Mm -hmm. I love the moving towards that language. I use evidence-based practice on my website a lot and I'm starting to be like, oh, I see the value of switching to this idea of evidence-informed because I think that does capture some of the the many barriers that are out there to really delivering these interventions as they were laid out in these studies. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I guess let's go there now. And I'd love to spend a little time just talking to the barriers that you experience to implementing research like this. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, then let's get real. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> let's get real because this is where reality sets in. Because for me, It was always frustrating to see a lot of these articles come out and these highly structured interventions. And I always felt like, well, I can't do that. I see 10 to 15 kids a day, 30 minute sessions. How in the world am I going to be able to do all of these things that people Mm -hmm. want me to do or that the research supports? So that was always super frustrating for me because I just felt like I wasn't given the resources as a new grad financially. It was not feasible for me to spend like a thousand dollars on a certification There were setting specific challenges, like I mentioned, where like the times per session, they're very short, but high productivity level. There's so many things that can make therapists shy away from some of these interventions. And I just give CIMT as an example, because I personally do a lot of modified constraint induced movement therapy, because the settings that I work in don't allow for the, you know, the intensity that is really mentioned in the research. And for casting, you know, a lot of times casting can be difficult for families to navigate or just may not be an option. Maybe the child is really, really young. You know, I've done a modified approach for babies six months old and, you know, casting, in my opinion, was not appropriate. So, you know, it's finding ways to use the principles of the study. So CIMT is based on like behavioral approaches like shaping, and it's also based on neuroplasticity and making changes in the brain based on like repetition and exposure and practice. So that's something that I took away from that. Like, how can I make this work in the context of this family, in the context of this setting? And is it appropriate? So you have to take all of these pieces of information and make it highly individualized to each person or each client and family that you come across. So it's a barrier to be able to perform these interventions 
exactly as they're stated in the research because it's very hard and especially these like highly intense models we unfortunately like a lot of settings don't allow for that they don't allow for Mm -hmm. three four hour sessions five times a week so I oftentimes see therapists kind of like oh well I know that that takes too much time or it's a lot of money so I mean I just never cared to learn it because I just know I can't be able to do that in my practice but then the underlying principles aren't explored so that's something that I you know, I'm always looking at like, why was this effective? And can I replicate any part of this in what I'm doing? It may not be the exact intervention. I can't call it that intervention, perhaps. But, you know, I I can still see outcomes in my families and in my clients if I'm taking away some of those principles. And resources is the last one. So not everyone has access to the same resources. So, you know, like I was kind of stating with the journals and, and having access to even learning about these articles having access to materials that you may need. Some of these are highly structured interventions where sometimes you need specific tools or skills, courses. So those are all things to think about that may be putting some people off from doing some of these interventions. Yeah, it's just so clear why there's such a long lag in getting evidence into our clinic. And I want to be careful. I mean, we just need both. We need highly structured protocols so we can study them. We totally need to see that. But we also need therapists like you who are able to see the underlying principles, why things work, and then be able to modify and tailor that to individuals. And that's just really hard. And I'm like, oh, therapists should be being paid the big bucks because that mm-hmm. is <laughs> takes a, t- a yes. ton of skill. It requires such agility from us, just a high level of acumen to be able to digest this and translate it. There's so many ways I can see our profession just needing to change and evolve to be more favorable to evidence-informed practice. Mm -hmm. I was wondering, like, for you personally, what are two or three ways that you'd like to see our profession change so we can provide more evidence-informed interventions like we've been talking about today? Okay. Definitely, I would love to advocate for a CPT code for parent education and training. I'm honestly shocked that we still don't have one. I can't believe we don't have one. (laughs) Other professions do have parent education, CPT code or billing code. So that is something that's really disheartening because one-on-one with a child present is the only way that we're able to really bill for our services. And really, it should be or what is outlined is like if you're doing therapeutic activities or exercise or neuromuscular education and things like that, but we're not able to just see the parent one-on-one without the child present. And that makes me sad because there are oftentimes so many things that we need to educate parents on that are not always easy topics to talk about. So if I'm educating a parent on sensory processing, if I'm educating them on neuroplasticity and brain development and why we're doing what we're doing and why the outcomes we're seeing are, you know, what we're seeing, it takes a lot of attention, a lot of focus. Like imagine like you in school learning sensory processing, but then now you have a child running around the room or like, you know what I mean? Like it just, it's very hard to be able to take these things and digest them and process them, let alone having the child present in the session. Also, I'm not a big fan of having the child present in the session when we're talking about like parent concerns, because I don't know to what extent this child is internalizing some of the conversation that we're having. Mm -hmm. So I've oftentimes had to get really creative with talking with parents because I also don't want the child to hear like, oh, 
you know, I'm concerned about so-and-so's behavior. I'm concerned about their skills. I'm concerned that they're not doing this, this and that. And the child is right there. And who knows to what degree they're internalizing that. So I've oftentimes had to call parents after evals, after sessions, you know, sometimes on my own time, which, you know, leads to many issues within our profession. But I really think that a parent education CPT code would be so, so, so beneficial in so many ways. And the research is already there to support it. We Mm -hmm. know parent collaboration is critical and parent training and parent education is important, but yet we don't have that resource to be able to integrate that into our practice effectively. So that's Mm -hmm. something for sure. I really hope is on the agenda uh, for our profession in the future. Oh, I totally support that one. Mm -hmm. As well as like a place for (laughs) intensive models of therapy. There's Mm -hmm. a lot of books that I've read. There's one that I, I never forget. And it's by a neonatologist. Her name is Dr. Karen Pape. I'm not affiliated with this at all. The boy who could run but not walk. She gives her perspective on just like the neuroscience behind therapies and just behind approaches for kids with CP. And there really is a place for intensive models of therapy. It really shows that they're effective. And we know they're effective from research and from like these big centers that unfortunately a lot of third-party payers, insurance companies don't cover. But we know from what these parents and families have been finding is that they are very effective. These three-week intensive or four-week intensive produce large outcomes simply because we're using these principles that we've talked about and they're able to practice things more effectively. And I usually tell parents, you know, if you're trying to learn an instrument, if you practice 30 minutes a day for two times a week, is you're not going to make the same gains as if you went to like a music camp and you were there mm-hmm. six, six days a week practicing hours and hours a day. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I used to play piano in my middle school and things like that. And I still remember songs. I don't play anymore. Like I just still remember songs just from that muscle memory and just from, mm-hmm. you know, procedural memory that because I was so intensive in the approach back then, I'm still able to remember things. So I always like to tell parents like those kind of examples so that they really let that sink in like, wow, I need to be a little bit more intentional and more intensive with the way that we practice things. And I feel like shorter models of therapy are conducive to that because there's only so long that you can keep your motivation high, especially in that like intensive type of approach. So I do think that there's a place for them that I think should be more widespread. And let's see other changes. I would say for interventions to be a little bit more accessible to practitioners, there's a lot of like the barriers we talked about. So having things be more financially accessible, easier to implement in busy practices, having resources be more attainable, those kind of things. And looking at evidence and trying to push for evidence that's more inclusive in terms of like equity with participants of color and things like that. There's so many things that can go on and on about just from my Mm -hmm. particular interest and my experience. But I I do think that there are many changes that we can make. And and I'm hopeful that we are going to start taking steps in the right direction. Yeah, I love hearing the ones that you highlighted. And as you're saying those, I'm like, this is so much bigger than just pediatric OT to like education with caregivers that extends into our adult care, like the evidence really supports that with our dementia patients and Mm -hmm. with adults as well. And those intensive models that also extends into adult care. And to me, it feels like a call to us as a profession to get out of our, even the silos that we've created within OT and to really band together on these big picture issues that 
affect all of us. We should be pushing for reimbursement for education like across the lifespan and having more opportunities for intensive models across the lifespan. Yeah, we need all of us to be pushing for those. I would, mm-hmm. I so hope that you and I get to see those changes in the next decades. And yeah, the research is there. What we see in our clinics supports it. It would just take a focus and a mobilization from us. I don't know for sure how that happens, but I guess conversations like this are a part of it. And that's why I love looking at evidence like this and having things like this bubble up. We're getting close to the end of our time already, and I really wanted to ask you some rapid-fire questions. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Are you up for that? Uh, I'm up for it. Let's see. Let's see what comes out. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) What's the first sentence that you usually say to your clients? That's hard because I have kids and adults. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, like the parent, you know. Yes. If it's like the evaluation, I'll usually introduce myself and, you know, I'm an occupational therapist. It's going to be working with you and your child. If it's the child, I'll usually say something like, hi, my friend, bye, my friend, those kind of things. (laughs) (laughs) And I usually like to mention, you know, when I first see them, like anything that may be motivating for them or like, oh, I have this toy back here or something to kind of like, you know, make them a little bit energized to come in. So that's usually how I'll, I'll start it off. Lots of high energy. It will depend. It depends on how I'm reading. Because if I see a child that like may be a little bit more like low arousal, I might go in a little bit more softly just to not to overwhelm them. I really like to observe first in the waiting Mm. room or if I'm like entering their home and kind of see what's going on to see what level I need to be at. That's awesome. And how do you usually wrap up a session? What's some of the last things you usually say? Mm -hmm. Usually by my friend. Adios in Spanish. <laughs> you know, even for the, the 20% or the kids that, I, that don't speak Spanish, I do like to integrate a little bit of my culture with them. And it's been fun. And a lot of parents find it mm. really cute little words that I teach them and things like that. So I, I'm really huge on sharing my cultural perspective in many ways and honoring that just like I honor that those of my clients. So I, I really like to make it fun in that way. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> How do you usually describe occupational therapy? It depends who I talk to and and who I'm directing the conversation to. But in general, I usually try to hit on the fact that, you know, occupational therapy is a profession that focuses on function, participation, and well-being, where we will work on meaningful activities and activities that are relevant to a person's life. Essentially, those are the components that I, I usually will include in my elevator speech. Yeah, awesome. What's your favorite assessment to do? Definitely goal attainment scaling or mm. gas goals. It's like an yeah. assessment and a goal at the same time, but it's really, really easy. And it really provides a lot of information for me because it's how the family and the child perceives that they're getting better and it's goals that we establish together. So that means more to me than any developmental assessment or any other assessment, not to say that there's not a place for them, but I really mm-hmm. do like the gas for these clients. Yeah. What's something you've read recently that's inspired you as an OT? A few books, but definitely I would say I'm still reading this book. I'm not done with it yet, but Beyond Behaviors by Dr. Mona Delahook. She has an awesome way of really using neuroscience and tools to work with kids to move beyond like the surface level. And she uses a 
analogy of like the iceberg. So we're only seeing the tip of the iceberg and really diving deep using various theories like polyvagal theory and like sensory processing to be able to understand kids in a more holistic way and provide tools that really meet them where they're at. Love that book so far. And I have to also mention 10 Fingers and 10 Toes. It's such an amazing book. And I always like to recommend that to other therapists because this is a doctor of physical therapy, Dr. Karen Pryor. And she has so many like treatment ideas, which I always find is missing in a lot of books where they give the theory, but not a lot of like Mm -hmm. real life applicable things. Her book provides a lot of like intervention ideas and how to really turn on neuroplasticity and what you can do to wire things together in the brain. And it's so mind blowing. I reread it all the time, depending Hmm. on the clients that I work with. So again, not affiliated with any of these people. I just, I find so much value in both of these books that, you know, 10 fingers, 10 toes I've read before. I constantly reread, but beyond behaviors is something I'm reading now. And I find so interesting. That's awesome. I'll definitely link to those into the different things you've mentioned throughout the podcast Mm. in our show notes. And I love hearing what you're reading because I'm like, Michelle's such a learner. I should uh, (laughs) be learning what she's learning. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And how do you hope a patient feels after your initial visit? So I hope that the parents feel empowered and hopeful after they first meet me. I I really want them to feel heard as well. I really want them to feel like they're an equal partner in what we're doing and not that I'm directing anything at all. I want them Mm -hmm. to feel that they're in charge and I'm just a a resource to them. That's really how I want them to walk away. And kids, I want them to feel like energized and like a connection with me. That Mm -hmm. doesn't always happen early on, but I always strive to, to feel a sense of connection and understanding with the child in the first few sessions, whether that means like we're, we're really taking a floor-based approach and, and really uncovering their motivators. That's something that I, I really strive to accomplish in the first couple of visits. Hmm. Yeah, you're the first person who's ever said connection and I can just see how important that is. And that's like undergirding all this research that we're looking at is, yeah, building that strong connection. And I can hear how that informs your work. We're at the end of our time, but I wanted to, just ask if there were any last final thoughts that bubbled up for you that you want to close this on today. Mm -hmm. I really want, especially for therapists that are listening to this and maybe had a similar experience to me with feeling like things could be better, feeling like you're so busy and overwhelmed with everything that you're learning and all these new approaches. I mean, this article can be easily overwhelming to someone looking at it. Like, How am I going to learn all of these things? I know that the the research supports it. I really want people to walk away with a sense of hope and a sense of curiosity to be able to look into maybe one at a time, like maybe take a couple of these green light interventions, sit with them and try to understand why they work and not to be put off by like highly structured, you know, interventions, because it's easy to be like, oh, I, I can't do that. There's no way I can do that and write it off. So just being open and just kind of learning based on what these interventions are based on. And and that really gave me a sense of, I guess, strength, or I feel empowered being able to understand what these concepts and interventions are based on, because I felt like I could be using that information along with the context of the family and the setting that I work in to be able to make it work in some way. 
And as well as like advocating for change. So if we know these things work, like your voice should be heard and your voice is valuable and we can make great change in numbers. So that's something that I like to always have on the forefront of my mind. Like, what can I do to make things better tomorrow or next month or the next year? Mm-hmm. Well, Michelle, I have felt so energized by this conversation. I'm so thankful for how you brought this paper to life for me. And I'm proud to have you in our profession. And I hope you keep doing the great work and keep learning and hopefully bring us all along with you. Oh, thank you so much. I'm honestly super honored to have been able to be on this podcast and share my perspective um, with you all. Wow, you all, this is definitely the kind of episode where you are going to want to dig into the resources that we discussed in our conversation. First of all, definitely take the time to go look at the evidence traffic light in the original article. And at otpotential.com, we did create a blog post just called Pediatric OT Interventions, where you can access this article and see all of the interventions that were listed. When you're looking at this article, there are so many details that I'm sure many of you will want to discuss, and a great place to do that is within the OT Potential Club. We'll have a forum both dedicated to the article and to this podcast episode, and I cannot wait to hear your thoughts on this. And as I mentioned at the beginning, if you are interested in earning a certificate for your time today, you can also head into the club to take a five-question test, and if you pass, we will generate a certificate for you for your continuing education. And as always, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. I hope this podcast helps you broaden your knowledge, tweak your practice, and stay evidence-based. Take care, and I'll talk with you next month.